0: At the very top of your page, it says the gospel, according to John. Within the first 400 years, they had added the word the gospel, but in the original Greek manuscript, it just was entitled according to John. And then hundreds of years later, it would say the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. And in chapter one, verse one, it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John's gospel has been called the best book about Jesus, and I think for good reason. It is the best book because. Of the person that it proclaims, Jesus, because of the promises that it promotes, that you can have life in Jesus. Forgiveness of sin and because of the protection it provides. Truth, freedom from error, an accurate account of the identity, the mission of Jesus. Before we dive into verses one and two. I want to talk a little bit about the purpose of John's gospel, and for that, you're going to need to go to John chapter 20, verse 31, and I sort of want you to put your finger there or a bookmarker there. Make a place there, because in John chapter 20, it gives us the purpose In verse 31, it says, but these concerning the gospel and this gospel in which we're reading. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John's gospel has a twofold purpose. One is evangelism. The other is apology. Or defense or the defense of the faith. John's gospel is a declaration that Jesus is the Christ. It's an invitation to accept him as both Christ and Lord. And John's desire is that the reader note, believe that Jesus is the Christ. You're going to see that word believe and belief more than 100 times in the gospel. And when you see the word believe, think in your mind, trust in, rely on, cling to. It doesn't simply mean to intellectually ac- accede to the facts or to simply acknowledge that something is true, but it means to embrace it in such a way that it changes your life. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that belief, that confidence, that Trust results in forgiveness of sin and a and transformation of heart and life in His name. I also want to remind you of something else about this gospel. John's gospel is both the most loved gospel in the Bible and the most hated gospel in the Bible. What's interesting to me is it's loved and it's hated. For exactly the same reason. It is loved because it is the most pure, the most simple, the most basic declaration concerning the identity of Jesus, his mission, his destiny and your opportunity to have a right relationship with God in Christ. And because it is the most simple and because it is the most basic and because it is the most straightforward offer of hope. For those people who hate hope, they hate this gospel. By the way, how many of you would go on record you don't you don't have to if it's not true, but how many of you, at least in your own life, have discovered that John is your favorite gospel and I know it's my favorite gospel um, for the person who's committed to unbelief. For the person who loves their sin. For the person who desperately wants to remain in darkness. This gospel becomes very, very problematic. Because it is the most pure. It is the most accurate. It is the most true statement concerning the identity of Jesus. And his death on the cross. And it becomes a stumbling block. An offense. The gospel of John is a threat. It's a challenge. And by the way, the Apostle John writes to a diverse audience. The Apostle John writes to the lost. Many of you are familiar with the most... Familiar verse in all of the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish, but have everlasting life. So he writes this gospel to the lost. He writes the gospel to the skeptic. He writes the gospel to the unbeliever. But he also writes the gospel to the new believer, to the to the person who has just come to faith and confidence in Christ. If you look at chapter one and in verse fifty. And in verse 51, it says, Jesus answered and said, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe there's that word? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. The the gospel was presented to the people who first followed Jesus. I remember when I first became a Christian. When I first accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, this is when dinosaurs roamed the earth. This is back in the ancient of days. When I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior, I remember praying with a person. And the person said, there are three things that you should do now that you've received Jesus as your Savior. The first thing that you should do is pray. God loves you and Jesus loves you. He's forgiven your sins. And now you have access to the Father. You can pray to him. The second thing you need to do is to tell someone that you received Christ as your Savior. And the third thing that you need to do is to read the Gospel of John. He said, because it's the best book if you want to get to know Jesus. And I just received him as my savior and I wanted to know everything that I could possibly know about him. And so I began reading this book as soon as I got home. I opened up the Bible that they gave me and I began reading this gospel. And by the way, that's part of your assignment this week. Now, obviously, this isn't homework in the sense that I'm going to check you and I'm going to give you a grade. I'm going to check your Bible at the door. But pray. And ask God to give you a little time to read the gospel. This gospel was meant to be read in a single sitting. Ask God to give you the time that you can just pray and then read the gospel from start to finish so that you can get an idea of its contents. So the apostle John writes it to the lost in chapter three, verse 16, to the skeptic and the unbeliever in chapter 20, to the new believer in chapter one, to the philosopher. in in chapter one, verse one, when it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, John goes on record in the very first sentence About the identity of Jesus. That Jesus is an uncreated creator. Jesus is one person with two natures. He is completely human. He is completely God. He is completely human. He is completely divine. And when he goes on record from the start, you can imagine how much antagonism that he generates for everyone who believes something differently about Jesus. The gospel is also written to the theologian in chapter one, verses 12 through 14, it says, but as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become the children of God or the authority to those who believe there's that word again in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the father who. Full of grace and full of truth. John's statement is for the person who calls themselves a theologian, a person who studies God. That it would make perfect sense that in order to study God, doesn't it make sense that you want to know him? That you want to have friendship and relationship with the God that you're learning about. It's been said of the Gospel of John That the waters are shallow enough that a child can wade in them and deep enough for an elephant to drown in. Do you remember when you were a kid and you were first learning how to swim? Remember as a child, you would get into the shallow end of the pool. And remember wading in, it's, it's all a brand new experience. You're into the water, and it comes up to your knees, and then it comes up to your waist, and then it comes up to your chest, and then it comes up to your chin, and then it comes up to your mouth, and you realize that you can still breathe through your nose, and you begin to walk a little bit deeper, and a little bit deeper, and then you begin to bounce on your toes, and you're bouncing up and down in the pool, seeing just how deep you can go before you can. Can't go any further. That's exactly how the Gospel of John is. It is a simple, so simple that a child can understand it, and it is so complex that after walking with the Lord Jesus Christ for more than 34 years, I still don't understand this Gospel. It's the Gospel of simplicity. John uses simple language in the most pure Greek possible for many students of the Greek New Testament. The the gospel, according to John, for those who are studying the, the original language, they begin in this gospel because it is both preschool and elementary school for understanding the Greek language. Matthew's gospel seems to have been directed at the Jews. Mark's gospel was written for the Romans. Luke's gospel for the Greeks. John's gospel was written... For a new generation. And every generation. What John Phillips calls the third generation. The reason why he calls it the third generation is because the gospel was probably written somewhere between 80 AD and 95 AD. He calls it the third generation, because guess what? When John picked up his pen to write these words. His brother had already been arrested and killed by by Herod Agrippa. Paul had already gone to Rome and his head had already been cut off. Peter had already been crucified upside down. When John wrote these words. All of the apostles were already dead. John was the first apostle to follow Jesus. And he was the last one to die. And after Matthew was gone and Mark was gone and Luke was gone. The last person to write about Jesus. Was John. John Phillips writes, someone needed to write for the church. It was the third generation. The ominous warnings of Paul and Peter and Jude about a coming apostasy in the church. They talked about grievous wolves coming and not sparing the flock were no mere alarmist fancies. By the time the third generation, all kinds of heresies were being spread about. And so John writes. To clear the air. And to make sure everyone understands about this true Jesus, this historical Jesus. We think of the last book in the Bible as the revelation of Jesus Christ, and rightfully so. But John the Apostle wrote this gospel. He wrote 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, and the book of Revelation. But I think it's possible that we could call this gospel of John the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because John's gospel is an unveiling, a revelation of the true Jesus. As a matter of fact, John makes it abundantly clear that Jesus is God's first word and that God's he's God's last word. When it says in the beginning was the word. I know that sounds strangely familiar to most of you. For those of you who have read your Bible, you know that it sounds very much like the opening of Book, in the opening chapter, in the opening verse, remember what it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John wants everyone to understand that in the beginning was the word. The word is a Greek word logos. It means a word that is an idea that expresses a thought that is then communicated. It's John's way of saying that Jesus is the express communication of God. Do you want to know what God is like? Do you want to know what he's like in his character? Do you want to know what he's like in his heart? Do you want to know what he's like in his thinking and his circumstances and in his message? Then look at Jesus. And so John points out to people that Jesus... Is the very revelation of God himself, we might even outline the Gospel of John in terms of belief and revelation in the first chapter, we see the witnesses to the revelation of of Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at John the Baptist and we're going to look at some of the other apostles and disciples. And the calling of the apostles and disciples in the second section, we see the revelation of Jesus, the son of God in chapter two, verse one, all the way to chapter three, verse twenty one. As we continue our study in the gospel of John, we're going to see the revelation of Jesus, the new master in chapter three, verse twenty two, the revelation of Jesus, the living water in chapter four, verse one, the revelation of Jesus, the authority and the power over life in chapter five, the revelation of Jesus, the bread of life in chapter six six. And then we're going to see the responses to the revelation of Jesus in chapter seven. A simple outline of the gospel might be the signs of that point to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God in chapter 1 all the way to chapter 4. The secrets of the Son of God in chapter 13 and chapter 14 and then the sorrows of the Son of God in John chapter 18 and, and John chapter 19. In the end of John's Gospel, we're going to see Jesus falsely condemned in John chapter 19. We're going to see Him crucified in John chapter 20. And then we're going to see Him conquering death in John chapter 21 as he rises from the dead and he comes back to life never to die again. This is why this is the best book about Jesus. Because it promises and promotes life. In John chapter 20, verse 31, remember what he said, and that in believing you may have life. In his name, it seems so simple. Yet the Bible truly indicates that there are two kinds of people in the world. Italian people and people who wish they were. No, that's not what what it's indicating. There are two kinds of people in the world. Those who have life and those who need life. And so he's talking about a particular kind of life. In the Greek language, there are two words for life. And most of you are familiar with both words, believe it or not. The first word is bios. Bios speaks of animate life. We get the word biology from that. It speaks of the kind of life where you have matter that is inanimate and then you have organic material that is animate. The second word is zoe. We get the word zoology from that. Zoe speaks of a kind of intrinsic kind of a life. The kind of life that lasts forever. It's a quality of life. And so, when it says in that believing you may have life in his name, he answers the question that some of you have already asked. Have you ever been all by yourself? Nobody's around. You're in your bedroom. You're on your bed. You're you're just talking to yourself or you're, you're talking to God or you're talking to whoever you think is out there. And you just simply basically say, what do you want from me? Why am I here? What do you want from me? He wants to know you and love you and have friendship and relationship with you. Here's what he wants from you. To be your Lord, to be your master, to be your savior, to be your friend, to be your constant companion. I'm going to say something a little rude. And I hope you're not offended. It may be that for some of you, your whole life, your purpose in life is simply to serve as a warning to others of what not to do. But I hope that's not the case. I hope that's not true. I hope that your whole purpose in life isn't simply to serve as a warning, but it is, it is to walk in friendship and fellowship with God. I once asked a person, I, I said to them, what is it that you want? And, and he said, I, I don't know what I want. But I know that I won't be happy until I get it. And I said to him, you know what that is? Even though you don't know what it is that you want, what you want is forgiveness of sin. What you want to have is a right relationship with God. What you want is that for the darkness to go away and for the fear to go away and for the emptiness to go away. God tells us what he wants. When he was speaking to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. Moses, speaking for the Lord, said, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. Moses was giving a summary, a simple summary, easy to remember. He was basically saying, number one, Listen carefully to what God says. Number two, obey His commands. Number three, love and worship Him with all of your heart. This same God is the same God who's spoken of in verse 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse one, when it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, that word with is very interesting in the original language. It's the Greek word pros, P-R-O-S. It is a word that speaks of proximity. The idea is you are eye to eye, nose to nose, mouth to mouth, face to face. Have you ever said to someone, get out of my face? You're typically speaking of the fact that they're very close to you. That's the proximity that is spoken of here in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was in fact God. John's gospel is the gospel of the revelation of the Messiah. John's Gospel shows the Old Testament prophecies having their fulfillment in Jesus. John will emphasize the salvation provided for by Jesus. As a matter of fact, John is going to point to the fact that Jesus is the very pinnacle, the sum and the substance of the Jewish covenant. Jesus himself is the fulfillment of the blessings promised Israel, the substance of blessing, the truth. And Jesus himself is the great meaning of the symbolic truths that were given in the great Jewish festivals right now, according to the Jewish uh, festival time. It's this is Rosh Hashanah. These are the series of festivals that lead up to the day known as Yom Kippur, which was the day, the holy day of atonement, when the priest would go into the temple and he would go into the holy of holies and he would offer the sacrifice of blood. John is going to point out that Jesus is the sum and the substance and the fulfillment of all of those festivals. And some conservative scholars suggest that the gospel was written sometime between 80 and 95 AD. This is sometime between the reign of either Titus, Domitian, Trajan, excuse me, I missed one, Nerva, or Trajan. There's this span of time. We know again that John late in life goes to Ephesus and he writes these words. We know that he lived into the reign of the emperor Trajan, which began about 98 A.D. Clement of Alexandria, who died in 212 A.D. said, and I quote, last of all, John perceiving that the external facts had been made plain in the Gospels, being urged by his friends and inspired by the spirit, composed a spiritual gospel, unquote. John wrote it fragments of this gospel were found in Egypt in 1925. As a matter of fact, the oldest papyri fragment of the gospel of the New Testament was found on a mummy in the deserts of northern Egypt It was a little girl. And we know that she was buried during the reign of Antoninus Pius, who lived about 138 A.D. within two generations of this gospel circulating. The gospel had already circulated. It had already made a difference. Some family in the northern part of Africa had read it and wept over it and used it. And then they used a fragment of the gospel to provide a pillow for their little girl who had died. We don't know what the fragment said. It's found in John chapter 18. I want you to imagine that there is no Matthew. There is no Mark. There is no Luke. There is no John. All we know, all we know, all we know about Jesus. Is from this little fragment that was found. Being used as a pillow for a dead little girl. In John chapter 18. In verses 31 and 33, this is what the fragment said. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Then the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, saying by what manner he would die. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? In the fragment. You know what's on the other side of the fragment? Verses 37 and 38. Look. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king for this cause. I was born and for this cause, have I come into the world? That I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth, hears my voice. There is no Matthew, there is no Mark, there is no Luke, there is no gospel, there's nothing, there's nothing, that's all that we know. What, what can we glean from just that tiny bit of information? Put on your CSI Littleton hats for just a moment. It tells us that there was a person named Pilate. We have historical evidence concerning him. There is a religious group of people. They've accused him of a crime. The Romans are trying him for a crime. They're accusing him of something, but we don't know quite what it is. It, it has something to do with a declaration that he's some sort of king. King. A real Jesus who lived in real time and space was tried and convicted and killed. Do you realize we know that from that tiny little fragment? Now, I want you to understand something. There are three other fragments that we have that date from the middle of the second century A.D. that contain the entire gospel of John. There are over 8,000 Greek manuscripts. There are over 10,000 Latin manuscripts. The reason why this all becomes so very important is because this gospel is rooted and grounded in reality. It is based not on fantasy, but on fact. And we know who wrote it. It was written by the Apostle John. He was the son of Zebedee. His brother was James. There's a clue that's given to us in chapter one, verse thirty five, where it says, again, the next day, John, speaking of John. The Baptist stood with two of his disciples. Those two disciples were followers of John the Baptist. And it says, and looking at Jesus. He walked and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. Later on in chapter one, we're going to discover that one of those disciples is Andrew. Because he went and found his brother Peter. All of the evidence points to the fact that this other person who was with him was John, the son of Zebedee, because he found his brother James. Do you understand what that means? It means that the person who wrote this book was the, one of the first people to follow Jesus and was one, It was the last person who walked and talked and cried and lived with Jesus and who died. Don't you think he's the best source of information about the life of Jesus? I told you about a radio program that I have, and I got a call from a caller in Highlands Ranch. Steve from Highlands Ranch. Hi, I'm Steve, and I don't believe that Jesus is God. Okay? John believes that Jesus is God, Peter believes that Jesus is God, Paul believes that Jesus is God, God believes that Jesus is God. But Stephen Highlands Ranch doesn't think so. Does it seem to make sense to you that Stephen Highlands Ranch is the best source of information concerning the identity of Jesus? John even writes about it in John chapter one, verse one, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. It's John's way of saying, I was there. I touched him. I walked with him. I wept with him. Everything that I'm telling you about, I saw. An early church father, Irenaeus, who was the bishop of Yon in A.D. 177, wrote, John, the disciple of the Lord who reclined on his breast, himself issued the gospel at Ephesus. John wrote it. Church tradition places John in the last days of his life. Remember, we just went through the little epistle to the Ephesians. And so in the last years of his life, John went to Ephesus and, and there he taught and there he preached and there he wrote. Jerome gives us a moving picture of the aged apostle in Ephesus in his in his commentary on the epistle to the Galatians. He writes, and I quote, when he tarried or stayed at Ephesus to an extreme old age and could only with difficulty be carried to the church in the arms of the disciples and was uneducated. Able to give utterance to many words, he used to say no more at their several meetings than this little children love one another at length. The disciples and fathers who were there wearied with hearing always the same words said, Master, why dost thou always say this? "It is the Lord's command was his worthy reply. And if this alone be done, it is enough. Unquote. It was his his way of saying whenever they had to have church and they would bring the Apostle John out and they were waiting. Okay, this is the last living person who walked and talked and lived and loved with Jesus. What do you have to say? Love each other. And what else? Pretty much it. Do you know what's important about that message? The message never changed. The n- the message never changed. God loves you. Jesus loves you. He was manifest in the world. God brought him here so that he could live the life that you could never live. He's he died on the cross for you. He rose from the dead to declare his love to you. It never changed. John writes with an intimate knowledge of his life. And John, along with his brother James, left everything to follow Jesus in Matthew chapter four. One of my favorite stories about the apostle John comes from Eusebius who was the early church historian, he wrote during the reign of a man named Julian the Apostate. This is before Constantine becomes the emperor of Rome in the late 200s. And according to Eusebius, John was banished to the island of Patmos during the reign of the emperor Domitian. Domitian was the youngest son of Vespasian who destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. He had a brother named Titus who built the Colosseum. Domitian was... Poisoned his brother Titus, became the emperor of Rome, went to Ephesus and had John boiled in oil. And he survived. And then he banished him to the island of Patmos. Where he wrote the book of Revelation. William Barclay, who was a lecturer at the University of Glasgow. In his Gospel of John, volume one, and I'm going to quote it at length writes, because this is my favorite story, quote, in the same passage, Eusebius tells a characteristic story about John, a story which he received from Clement of Alexander. John became a, a kind of bishop of Asia Minor, and he was visiting one of the churches near Ephesus in the congregation. He saw a tall and exceptionally fine looking young man, and he turned to the elder in charge of the congregation and said to him, I commit that young man into your charge and into your care. And I call upon this congregation to witness that I do so. And the elder took the young man into his house and cared for him and instructed him. And the day came when he was baptized and received into the church. But soon afterward, he fell in with evil friends and he embarked on such a career of crime that he ended up becoming the leader of a band of murdering and pillaging brigands. Now, for those of you who don't know what a brigand is, a brigand is a pirate, or I guess if, we, if we're talking in the year two thousand and seven, a gangster, a homie, a gang member. Sometime afterward, and and so he he then became the leader of this group of pirates. And sometime afterwards, John returned to the congregation and he said to the elder, Restore to me the trust which I and the Lord committed to you in the church of which you are in charge. At first, the elder didn't understand what John was talking about. I mean, said John, that I'm asking you for the soul of the young man whom I entrusted to you. Alas, he said, He's dead. John said, what do you mean he's dead? He said he's dead to God. He's abandoned God. He's committed crimes. He's fled outside of the city and become a pirate. And straight away, John went into the mountains. And deliberately, he allowed himself to be captured by the robber band. And they brought him before the young man who is now the chief. Of the band. And in his shame the young man tried to run away from him who was now the ch- of, of the man who pursued him "my son" he cried "are you running away from your father" "i'm feeble i'm far advanced in age have pity on me my son are you running away please don't be afraid" There is yet hope of salvation for you. I will stand for you before the Lord Jesus Christ. And if need be, I will gladly die for you as he died for me. Stop. Stay. Believe. I love this story because it rings true. Stop. Stay. Believe, it's Christ who sent me to you. And the appeal broke the heart of the young man. He stopped. He threw away his weapons and he wept. And together, he and John went down the mountainside and they were brought back to the church and into the Christian way. Do you understand what's happening in that story? The same person who wrote this gospel maintains his love and courage and commitment. And a shepherd's heart. You see, the gospel was never supposed to be a a book that you just simply learn in order to gather more facts about Jesus. John wants you to know him and to fall in love with him all over again. Because it proclaims Jesus. Some of you might ask the question. Why should I? Why should I believe in the Bible? Why should I believe you? Why should I believe in God? Why should I? And the short answer is because there's no one like the Lord. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2, it says, no one is holy like the Lord. There's none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. You exist to know God and to have fellowship with him. Your sin has separated you from God. God wants to give you life. God wants to help you in your daily struggles. Belief in God is not for cowards. It's for people who understand and accept their own limitations. David was no coward. He killed a bear with his own hands. He killed a lion with his own hands. He he killed a giant. But even David knew that he needed a rock and a shield. What does it mean to have life in his name? Well, the Bible says that life is in Christ. If you go to John chapter one and you just read a few verses below it in verse four, it says in him was life and the life was the light of men. Life consists of. Both a quality and an essence of life, a purpose in life and a perfection in life. The idea being without Jesus, there would be no life at all. Life is in him. Life is in the very being of Jesus. All things exist and have their being. That is life and purpose and significance in him. Jesus is the purpose of life. Jesus is the meaning of life. Jesus is the significance of life. Jesus is the source of life. Jesus is the way to life. Jesus is is the truth about life, what John is suggesting is that he is the very substance of life. If you go again into John chapter 5, verse 26, it says, for as the Father has life in and of himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in and of himself. Do you know what that means? There's only one being in the universe who is a self-existent being, not dependent on anyone or anything. That is God. Jesus is saying the Father has life in and of Himself. He's not dependent for life on anyone or anything. And Jesus is making the bold declaration that just like God is a self-existent being, that Jesus is a self-existent being. Not only does He have life, but He's capable of giving life to anyone. Now we understand what Jesus meant when He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, even if he were dead. Because he has the ability to bring him back to life. Again, he talks about it in 1 John 1, verse 2. That life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. You see, eternal life is a quality of life. Rooted and grounded in relationship and friendship with God. No wonder Jesus would say. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. And we see the protection that it provides in John chapter one, verse one, when he says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. when you ask and answer the question, what am I supposed to believe about Jesus? John gives the answer right from the start. Jesus is one person with two natures. He is completely God and completely human. What the what the theologians call, he is full deity, undiminished deity and full humanity. When John wrote these words, there were already all kinds of false teachings floating around about Jesus. These false teachings would be given names and they would be debated among church leaders and they would be written about for generations to come. There was one uh, heresy called Apple... Apollinarianism. Apollinarianism was the idea that the word became flesh, but not with a body or its like. Christ had no human spirit, but rather the logos replaced it. It was the idea that God became had the appearance of a human, but he was, in fact, not human. And in Gnosticism, the Lord only assumed the appearance for a time of something that was really quite alien. It was as if an alien had come from another planet or from another dimension or another time. And he just had the illusion of humanity. There's another one, Eutychianism, the human nature of Christ is absorbed by the Logos and that the result in the incarnation is a third nature, not human, not divine, both yet neither. And then there's another one, Nestorianism, that the Lord had both a divine personality and a human one and that Jesus was Christ as a God-bearing man rather than as a God-man. The idea of being a mechanical rather than an organic union of Christ. And I'm going to talk more about this stuff as we go ahead. But here's the, short, the long and short of it. If you are wrong about Jesus, it doesn't matter what you're right about. You have to get Jesus Right. Jesus is God and Jesus is man. He is completely human. He is completely God. The gospel refutes almost every heresy that would be conceived in every continuing generation. And again, John writes to convince the reader of the true identity of Jesus as the God man. And by the way, he's going to offer eight signs or proofs to reinforce the claim. He's going to focus on eight miracles. The water turning into wine at Cana in chapter two, the healing of the son of the palace official in chapter four, the healing of the lame man in chapter five, the feeding of the multitude in chapter six. Um, The walking on the water at the end of chapter six, the healing of the blind man in chapter nine, the raising of Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11, the catch of the fist after the resurrection in, in John chapter 21. And so his claims, his proofs, his invitations as he talks about these signs are all intended to get the reader to the place where they will say. Jesus really is God. For those who say that Jesus is simply a man. An extraordinary man, perhaps the best man who ever lived. John says, no, he is the word. He was with God and he is God. And for the person who said he isn't really a human being. By the way, do you realize that in the first century, the greatest debate wasn't on whether or not Jesus was God. The biggest debate was whether or not he was a real human being. But Jesus will John will talk about a Jesus who lives. Who's full of sorrow. Who weeps real tears when his friend dies. Who falls asleep. A real human being who experiences all that human beings experience sorrow, tears, fatigue. And for those who look for a different messiah. Or for a future Messiah. Or for a different hope. John says. Jesus is the only hope. (laughs) In Haley's Bible handbook. There's a wonderful statement. It says the five most important chapters in the entire Bible may be Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, and John chapter 20 and 21 because they tell of the most important event in human history, the resurrection of Christ from the dead, the capstone of the whole Bible, unquote. That's your other assignment. Read the Gospel of John. But your other assignment is this, pick out five chapters In the Bible. That are your favorite chapters. That are the chapters that are important to you. Now, by the way, there are 66 books in the Bible. There are 260 chapters in the New Testament alone. Don't make me choose. I love them all. And remember, John's gospel was meant to be read in a single sitting. Whatever else John is saying about this gospel, he wants to demonstrate and then illustrate the deity of Jesus to show that he is God. And that when you understand that because he is God, he's able to forgive you, to cleanse you, to change you, to transform you. That you embrace faith. It's really that simple. And that complex. But that's our introduction. Let's pray Heavenly Father. Lord, we pray again. That as we read this gospel. That we would come to not only know and love more and more the person it proclaims Jesus. But that we would embrace the promise that it proclaims that we have life, everlasting life in Jesus. And the protection that it provides, truth, that we can know the truth. How can I know what's real, what's true, what's right, what's wrong? And that that John has given us an accurate statement, a fully trustworthy account of the life and the ministry and the words of Jesus. And so again, I pray for that person who's wandered far away from you like the story of John. they have run away and they have decided to live their own life. Lord, I pray that even now, John, through the pages of history, would run into the mountains and find them. And tell them that Jesus loves them. And that the message hasn't changed. And that He's still willing to forgive them. And He's still willing to restore them. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would remind that person of your deep and abiding love. And for that person who is empty and all alone, Lord, I pray that they would believe that Jesus is who he said he is. They would come to life. Is that you? Do you need to receive Christ as your Savior? It's easy to do to simply turn from your sin. Turn to Him. Acknowledge Him as Lord and Savior. Ask Him to forgive you and He will. Ask Him to come into your life and to change you and transform you so that you can live a life of faith and obedience to Him. He'll hear you. And He'll forgive you. Amen. Let's stand